Let's pray. Uh, indeed, Father, this is my time of need. Come quickly to save me as we consider this text. Uh, open our eyes, uh, give us wisdom and understanding. Um, uh, please um, be at work amongst us by your Holy Spirit and be leading us to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, David and Bathsheba. <clears throat> Am I clearing my voice loudly enough? <clears throat> David and Bathsheba. Uh, after David and Goliath, probably the most famous story from the life of David. And the story is a major turning point in the life of David. Now, uh, ten weeks ago, when we began this series of sermons on the second half of the life of David, I think I announced that this series would carry us right up to the, to the death of David, that is, right to the end of this book, 2 Samuel. But for a variety of reasons, I've decided to um, finish this series early. Uh, we'll look at David and Nathan, chapter 12, next week, but after that we'll leave the rest of David's life till next year. So I guess I'm chopping David's life not into halves, but rather into thirds, and we're looking at the last third of his life next year. But the last third of David's life actually starts right here. From here, it all goes pear-shaped. Up until here, David has deserved, really, the title of hero. I mean, he hasn't been perfect. He's a man of his times, but... As a man of faith, he's been outstanding. A man after God's own heart. A man of prayer. A man who desires nothing beyond serving God and singing God's praise. He's been astonishingly faithful and therefore astonishingly wise in nearly all he does. But here today in this text, it all goes wrong. Um, and when we remember this story, we might think that this is a story about adultery. But when we look at the text, we see that the actual act of adultery is really just scene-setting. The, 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 li the liaison itself is over and done with by the end of verse 5. And after that, Bathsheba is off stage for nearly the entire chapter. The focus of the chapter is on David and his dealings direct and indirect, with Uriah the Hittite. And I guess that's worth understanding because I think that this chapter really is something of a case study of sin from the life of David. I don't think it's a case study of adultery. Adultery is a common enough sin, but it's common because it has many different causes. Adultery is like car accidents. There may be common themes and repeating factors, but each car accident is its own accident and no two adulteries are identical. On the other hand, sin is monotonously boring and predictable. This is about sin. If, if you need a quick and easy definition of sin, and it's actually quite a hard concept in some ways, but if you need a quick and easy definition of sin, how about this one? Sin is ignoring God and breaking his rules. When we break God's rules, we are ignoring God. And when we ignore God, we're breaking his rules. 
Why do we ignore God and break his rules? Well, we do that in order to push him and his truth out of our lives so that we can take his place. We, we, we do that in order to act like a God whilst ignoring God. And that's another good definition of sin. Sin is acting like a God whilst ignoring God. And that's what David does in our story today. Acts like a God whilst ignoring God. The narrator draws us rather cleverly into this process of David becoming his own God by way of the repetition of a seemingly harmless little word. A staircase of not your will, but mine be done. And we might recognize that as uh, what we might today call a sense of entitlement. And that's a, a beloved phrase of our age, and rightly so, the sense of entitlement is an essential ingredient in two things that we just love to pour over and analyze at the moment, and there's such two things including the sexual misconduct amongst rich and famous people and economic disaster stories, financial misdealings. A sense of entitlement is an essential ingredient in, in all of that. The idea that I don't need to ask your permission because I'm more important than you. And that is David in this story. I don't need to ask your permission because I'm more important than you. And David is tremendously powerful. And all of that power is expressed through this word, sent. But there are two things he can't control. He can't control Bathsheba's womb. So then in verse 5, it is Bathsheba who does the sending. And David can't control God. And so then the next chapter begins with, Now the Lord sent Nathan the prophet. Well, as today's uh, text opens, David sends Joab in his stead to continue the war against the Ammonites. It is the spring, the time when kings go off to war. David ought to be with Joab and his troops defending Israel. Leading armies is the job of kings. I mean, that's the whole point of having a king. A king is someone who saves you from your enemies. David is AWOL, absent without leave, just as he was last week. And, and, and last week we, 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 we cut him some slack. Last week we noticed that David was AWOL and we put that down to David perhaps now as a middle-aged man. Perhaps he's had a gut full of fighting and warfare. But here we see it differently. David is not, David is not where he's supposed to be. Not where he's not where God wants him to be. He's not doing what God wants him to be doing. And although we know David to be a man of prayer, he doesn't pray. And perhaps that's because he knows in advance what God would say if he prayed. He, he can just hear what God would say already. And perhaps God would say to him something like, What are you doing, Dave? What are you doing here, Dave? Well, we often avoid God when we think we know what he's going to say. But not being where he was supposed to be, doing what he was supposed to be doing, leads David into seeing something he ought not to have seen. He sees the beautiful Bathsheba uh, bathing 
uh, naked. Um, what, what is going on here? Well, it's, um, I guess there are, two, there are two ways of seeing it. It's not entirely clear what's going on here. Um, in terms of the, the English text in our NIV Bibles, it would appear that David is suffering from insomnia and he gets up in the middle of the night and he wanders around on the roof of the temple and he, he, he sees this beautiful girl and he takes her. Um, and so perhaps what we're reading is a, is a story of, of, of criminal gross sexual misconduct, of sexual assault. Um, is that what's going on here? It could be. The, the Hebrew reads um, somewhat differently. Uh, for a start, um, what happened didn't happen at night. It is the evening. In other words, it is the end of the day. It is sunset. Uh, David gets up from his couch. In other words, he, he gets up from his um, extended midday siesta. This happened, from our perspective, more or less in daylight. And the Middle Eastern scholar Kenneth Bailey explains to us some nuances that we might miss. You see, Jerusalem, as with any city in the ancient Near East, only very rich people have a second or third story that would allow them to look from above into other people's houses. Windows are high up. Back gardens, if they exist at all, exist in the form of walled courtyards. David's Jerusalem is very small and very crowded. And as I think women of all cultures can testify, you don't undress or take a bath where people can see you. Unless, of course, you want them to see you. When Bathsheba bathed, David was probably only 20 feet away or less. It is impossible, Kenneth Bailey argues, for Bathsheba to be innocent in this. This is why, again, Kenneth Bailey argues, Bathsheba is the only unnamed woman in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. She is simply and disrespectfully referred to as, quote, a woman who had been Uriah's wife, unquote. Matthew knows her name. It's just that he also knows her game. Well, perhaps Bathsheba's plan then is to get noticed by the king. If that's the case, then her plan works. And to be fair to Bathsheba, her plan, if that's her plan, it really, really works. Because actually, at the time of King David's death, she is the most powerful person in all of Israel. Whether Bathsheba is innocent victim or scheming brass, it's not really ultimately relevant. Whether David's actions are criminal or just really, really stupid, it's not really relevant. What's actually relevant is that David's actions are evil. And the text says so explicitly. In the Hebrew, the text ends with the words, and these actions were evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Um, but between the discovery of the pregnancy in verse 5 and David and Bathsheba's marriage in verse 27, a lot of things unfold. And this is how sin unfolds in this drama. This is how it avalanches one 
Firstly, David makes liars of his entire household. Um, the whole household knows about what's happened. David used servants to summon Bathsheba, and Bathsheba uses servants to tell David about being pregnant, and the whole household would have known, known that Bathsheba stayed the night. So when Uriah the Hittite comes into Jerusalem, having been sent for by David, he would have asked around, why, why has David sent for me? Why has David called me from battle? And the servants would have known, but they would have had to have misled him. They would have had to have said something like, ah, um, I don't know, Uriah, uh, you know, David, uh, he's a caring guy. Uh, maybe he just wants to see how you're going. And that would have been a lie. They all knew what was going on. So what's happened straight away in David's household is that truth is trashed. It's no longer a place where, 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 where the truth is told. And the culture of David's house is corrupted by a corrupt head of the household. That, that's the first thing that happens. Uh, David makes liars of his staff. Two, David turns himself into a two-faced liar. He treats Uriah like a long-lost buddy, feigning interest in his welfare and the welfare of his troops, but it's just a lie. He's charming to this guy offering him intimate hospitality in the royal palace. But this is after having slept with his wife and before arranging for his murder. We notice the bitter irony of David sending Uriah's murder warrant by Uriah's own hand to Joab. So, that's, so David turns himself into a two-faced liar. Thirdly, David, the man of faith, undermines faith. Uriah, as an act of good faith, refuses to enjoy the comforts of home whilst his comrades are living rough. David tries to seduce Uriah, tempting him to put the gratification of sensory pleasure before trying to convert Uriah into making the same mistake he did. David, the man of faith, undermines faith. Four, David turns his chief of staff into a stooge. Joab is assigned David's dirty work and Joab knows it. Five, David turns his chief of staff into a fool. Uh, in order to orchestrate, and there's a lot of detail about this, just, just so we understand what's going on here. Uh, in order to orchestrate Uriah's death, Joab is going to have to do something that is unthinkably stupid, which is to push a contingent of soldiers into close combat near the city wall where they were easy prey for archers from the top of the wall. And, and Israel had known for centuries this was a dumb thing to do. All of Joab's men would have noticed this and considered Joab an idiot or criminally callous or both. And bad morale would have spread, spread through the ranks as a result. So... David has turned his chief of staff into both a stooge and a fool. Six, David corrupts justice in his kingdom. An innocent man is killed while a guilty man is acquitted. The guilty man is David. Seven, David becomes a murderer as well as, obviously, a covetous philanderer, an adulterer, and a liar. It is obvious that David murders Uriah by way of the Ammonites. It is also clear, although perhaps slightly less obvious, that other young men also died needlessly 
in this ruse created in order to make Uriah's death look like an accident. More men than Uriah died as a direct result of David's scheme. Eight, David loses sight of right and wrong, calling in our text good evil and evil good. In verse 25, we read David saying to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. In the Hebrew, David has said, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes because the sword devours one as well as another. And the last sentence of the chapter, likewise in Hebrew, reads, and the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. So, ironically, David has reversed God's judgment, calling evil good and good evil. His moral compass is shot. And nine, lastly, David, the man of prayer, has lost his prayer life. There's no mention of prayer or of God at all in this passage until God shows up uninvited in the last verse. David has lost touch with the God who'd saved him again and again and again. And perhaps at one level, that, that, is, the safest, sorry, that is the saddest thing of all. Um, so basically, David is going to hell and he's taking his kingdom with him unless God steps in to save. And actually he does. And we'll hear about that next week. But with respect to this text today, what can we learn? What, what, can, we, what can we take note of? Well, I, I, I think really the main lesson of this chapter, the thing that it's teaching us, is that sin isn't satisfied with little victories. Sin takes over. It infects everything. What this means, sadly, is that actually, this is a thing that we should all mourn and be deeply sad about. Sadly, there is no such thing as a little sin. Staying in Jerusalem when he should have been in Ammon, that was a little sin. But boy, did it snowball. And another thing about sin, which we see clearly here, it's, one, it's a, something that I discovered for myself in my own life before I spotted the, the same pattern in Scripture. And that is the way that my sin oftentimes hurts people around me before it hurts me. Sin often hurts the people we love before it hurts us. David sinned, but Uriah died. And so did many others. In fact, as, as this story unfolds from here through the chapters to come, we're going to lose count of the number of people who are hurt, killed, or suffer as a direct result of David's sin. So now that we've read the Bible today, we cannot claim to be ignorant of the fact that our sin may hurt a large number of people in ways that we cannot, in the first instance, imagine or foretell. And there's one more thing that we learn here that I think is vitally important. 
And it's not so much something that we learn about sin as it is something that we learn about David. David is a good king, but he's not perfect. And what we read about him today is deeply disappointing. He does evil, and therefore he is an evil man. And that's deeply disappointing, especially when you realize that David is the best king the Old Testament has to offer. The standard against which others will be measured. And David should know all this stuff about sin. And he does know all this stuff about sin. But what we see here is that you don't solve the problem of sin by simply knowing about sin. Moralism is useless. Something more is required. We need to be saved from it by some external power. In the context of the Old Testament, this chapter is saying David can't, ultimately, David can't fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15. The promise of a king who will defeat Satan and Satan's work in our lives. Look somewhere else. David can't do it. And that would lead us to the deepest of despair if it weren't for the fact that the New Testament gives us a new king. A king who never sinned. Jesus never sinned. And that's tremendously important because it means that not only can we trust him completely, but that we can also trust his kingdom. And that we can also trust that we ourselves will be transformed now as we walk with Jesus in his kingdom. It is a transforming power. This chapter points to Jesus insofar as it speaks eloquently of our need to have a king that is different to David. We, we need a king from God who is God and Jesus is precisely that. Jesus, the sinless man, died on the cross so that we might be forgiven in order that the power of sin might be broken. And on the basis of the cross, we have the Spirit. Now, there's a lot more that I could say about this, but I don't want to say too much because we need to hear from Nathan and listen to David first, and we'll do that next week. But by the same token, it would be completely wrong of me to leave anyone here this morning despairing. So, to be sure, to be sure this chapter confronts us with the hideous power of sin. But despite its power, its hold on us has been destroyed at the cross. So then, James writes, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That the power of sin has been broken by Jesus on the cross. And therefore, actually, we, we, we can publish and be saved. We can put our faith in Christ and be freed. Because as John writes, if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We are the body of Christ and his spirit is with us. The peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
Amen.